Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. I'm curious to know, are you ready to quit sugar, commit or recommit to the September sugar-free 30-day challenge? Eliminate all added and processed sugars from your diet between September 1st to September 30th. This year, we're going to have live cooking videos, an encore of the Food Junkies Summit, sweet sobriety stories, access to Food Junkies podcast, ongoing daily free Facebook peer support, and prizes for success. You can sign up at www.addictionsunplugged.com and join the Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support, I'm Sweet Enough. All right, in today's episode, Vera talks to Dr. Daniel Schechter about the endocannabinoid system. So don't miss out on this amazing conversation. Take it away, Vera. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today speaking with Dr. Daniel Schechter worldwide expert and medical consultant for the use of cannabis. Dr. Schechter is the Associate Director of Clinical Education for Santa Cannabis and founder of the Cannabo Medical Clinics, where patients are assured safe access for cannabis therapeutics. Dr. Schechter studied at Family Medicine at the University of Toronto and is MD at University of Montreal. We at Food Junkies are especially interested to know the role of the endocannabinoid system and how it may contribute to our understanding of overeating, possibly a food addiction, and ultimately if there is a role for cannabis treatment in food addiction recovery. So welcome, Dr. Schechter. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, thank you for uh, t- spending, uh, taking your time out to do this. So can you tell us, first of all, I mean, you started off in family medicine. How did you get into the field of cannabis, especially when it wasn't legal and it was uh, potentially problematic in the sort of Canadian scene? So tell us how you got into it. And then ultimately, uh, yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, medical cannabis has been available in Canada since 2001. And I, when I went into medicine, I was actually interested in integrative medicine. So bringing together both Western medicine and complementary and alternative medicine to really address the root of underlying disease. And as part of my uh, interest in integrative medicine, I ended up doing an independent study one summer with a physician at McGill University by the name of Dr. Mark Ware, who he himself is one of the world's leading experts in medical cannabis. And at the end of the, uh, the course, and we were chatting and we got along quite well. And he said, you know, Daniel, would you like to stay on as a research assistant with me? I said, yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. What kind of project would I be working on? And he said, medical cannabis. And that blew my mind because I didn't know what medical cannabis was at the time. And once I started working with Dr. Ware, I learned about the endocannabinoid system and how important it was to virtually every single 
processed in our body. And I understood that medical cannabis could be used as a very useful tool in a number of different pathologic conditions, ranging from chronic pain to inflammatory bowel disease uh, to even some psychiatric conditions. And it was when I really understood that we had uh, an endocannabinoid system, that we had molecules in our body that were very, very similar to the main molecules in the cannabis plant, that it blew my mind. And I said, we really have to understand it and disseminate this information much more broadly. Yeah, and, it was a whole a whole area of, of um, brain mechanism that we were missing out on. Exactly. And and it wasn't just the theoretical aspect about the endocannabinoid system. It was really seeing uh, patients in clinical practice who were benefiting from the use of cannabis for a therapeutic purpose. And hearing them tell me time and time again, Doc, I know it's illegal at the moment, but this stuff saved my life. This stuff allowed me to reduce my the amount of opioids I'm using. This stuff allows me to control my pain from my inflammatory bowel disease and allows me to lead a semi-normal life. So when I put all of this together, I said, you know, there really is something here. And we also need to get a rational and sane perspective on the use of cannabis for medical purposes. And that's why I really decided to delve into this field uh, in order to be a voice of reason, because there's a lot of people who are in this field that are more activists than scientists or physicians or business people. Yeah. And I think that patients deserve to have an objective and rational voice. Which is exactly why I called upon you for this conversation. But before we get to, because I really would like you to explain the endo endocannabinoid system, but before we get to that, you just mentioned this, that, that out there in the, I guess, internet world, there are the, the uh, basically the salespeople, and then there's the uh, advocates. How do we know what is good research versus what is basically just a tool for a secondary motive? Yeah, so... You know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with where you source the re research from. So if you're going to websites that are owned and operated by a commercial entity, either a cannabis producer or a clinic that is set up to have as many patients sign on to cannabis as possible, these are obviously going to be biased sources. It's always good to look at non-biased sources. There are excellent sources that are actually published and funded by the government of Canada. One of the sources that I like the best is publication that was initially written in 2013 and revised in 2018, published by Health Canada that reviews all of the evidence pertaining to cannabis and the cannabinoids. It's called Information for Healthcare Practitioners, Cannabis and the Cannabinoids. It goes through everything you need to know, including up-to-date or the state of research that is up-to-date in the various areas that you're interested in, whether it be uh, for psychiatric issues, for addiction, for chronic pain, whatever it is. And of course, the regular PubMed resources that you can look up. Uh, always better to go with a journal that has a 
high impact value uh, as opposed to a low impact value. And there are also uh, some websites that you can look at to actually see how well supported or by peer reviewed by peer reviews certain journals are because what we're seeing now in the academic world is hundreds of thousands of medical journals that are in articles that are cropping up that could be written by bots so you really want to make sure that you access high quality information yeah and that that article that uh, pardon me that document that you were talking about from the government that's probably accessible via internet right that uh, that is a free download yeah. on the internet you just have to google health canada information for healthcare practitioners cannabis and the cannabinoids that's great that's fabulous thank you Okay, so can we get to the endocannabinoid system? Because that's really what I would like to flesh out here. I mean, you know, we're aware of the opioid system. We're aware of the uh, whole dopamine with, with addiction, but we don't know anything about the endocannabinoid. So give us a primer of, I don't know, five minutes or something. Just tell us what it is. So, I mean, five minutes is a tough one. I can talk all day about the endocannabinoid system. I bet you can. Well, eventually, as it pertains to food, but let's start. Let's start with the basics. Absolutely. So, the endocannabinoid system, in a very brief summary, is an ancient and ubiquitous lipid signaling system that has a tremendous impact on virtually all functions of the body, ranging from energy, metabolism, reproduction, sleep, uh, perception of pain, psychiatric disorders, uh, both in pathologic and non-pathologic states. Now, the endocannabinoid system was only recently discovered. It was only really identified throughout the 1990s. And it was identified because we've been using herbal cannabis inhaled for thousands of years. And we said, okay, well, we we know that the main active molecule in herbal cannabis is THC or tetrahydrocannabinol. And this molecule has an effect on the body. So how does it have an effect? Why, why is it having these impacts on, you know, our desire to relax, on our sleep, on our appetite, on our perception of pain? What is it actually doing to our body? And what happened is that they were able to identify specific receptors that were activated by the active molecules in the cannabis plant, so THC. And eventually, we also found that CBD, or cannabidiol, the second most active or abundant molecule in the cannabis plant, also had an effect on these very same molecules. So they identified specific molecules or uh, receptors that were activated by THC and CBD. These eventually became known as cannabinoid receptors. And at the moment, there are two main cannabinoid receptors that have been identified. We call them cannabinoid receptor 1 and cannabinoid receptor 2, shortened to CB1 and CB2. But there's also a number of other uh, potential receptors that are also targets for plant-based cannabinoids, which we're not going to get into at the moment. Really, the main drivers are CB1 and CB2. 
Now, after we found that there were these cannabinoid receptors, we said to ourselves, well, why do we have these cannabinoid receptors for molecules that are found in nature? Maybe we actually are producing molecules that are similar to these molecules found in nature that are THC and CBD. And we were eventually, able, shortly after the discovery of the CB1 and 2 receptors, we were able to identify molecules that we produced naturally in our body that would activate these cannabinoid receptors. So the molecules that we found that would activate these cannabinoid receptors became known as endocannabinoids. So endocannabinoids are cannabinoids that are produced within the body. Uh, phytocannabinoids are cannabinoids that are found in nature in highest quantity and density in the cannabis plant. And then there are also synthetic cannabinoids that are created in a laboratory that we will talk about later on during the podcast. But what we found is that these endocannabinoids, and there are actually a, a number of endocannabinoids that have been identified, but again, there are two main endocannabinoids that have been identified and are thought to be responsible for the vast majority of effects in the body. The first one that was identified is called anandamide. Anandamide actually comes from the Sanskrit word uh, for pleasure, uh, which was obviously taken from the pleasure that can be derived from THC when used in a recreational manner. The second endocannabinoid that has been identified doesn't have as much of an interesting name. It goes by the acronym 2-AG or 2-arachidinoyl glycerol acid. So what does the endocannabinoid system do? Well, it is a lipid signaling system, and it is actually a system that has a very important role in the modulation of neurotransmitters. And it actually works as a feedback system or uh, a system to modulate the amount of information that is going from one neuron to the next. And and those neuro neurotransmitters are things like dopamine and serotonin and endorphins. Exactly. So GABA, dopamine, yes. glutamate, all of the neurotransmitters that have that can have both excitatory or inhibitory effects on the uh, nerves that are being affected. So depending on which neuron is going to be uh, affected by the endocannabinoid system it's, and where in the brain it is, it's going to have a very different effect on the human body. Can I just ask as a clarification or illustration, so if it affects the GABA receptor or the GABA, uh, uh, which is an inhibitory process, that would explain why marijuana, some marijuana, makes a person calm and relaxed. Exactly. Also because it affects dopamine, that might explain why, because it's enhancing the dopamine, the person would feel more excited and, and uh, all, of, all of the things that happen with uh, excessive dopamine. Exactly. And as we'll talk about later on, when you have dopamine uh, being stimulated through the use of inhaled cannabis, it's going to make you more excited and it's going to really enhance that uh, reward circuit leading to increased pleasure and desire for food intake. Right. Okay. So just, just for the purposes of our listeners, 
basically the endocannabinoid system infiltrates all of the other systems that we've been talking about. Exactly. So it'll infiltrate the dopamine system, the opioid system, and there's a lot of crosstalk between these two systems. In general, what happens is that endocannabinoids are different from other neurotransmitters because they are actually produced in the postsynaptic terminal on an on-demand basis. And what happens is when these endocannabinoids are produced, they will travel in a retrograde fashion. So they'll travel to the presynaptic terminal. They will bind to cannabinoid receptors that are on the presynaptic terminal, set off a signaling cascade that ends up usually in the reduction or stopping the release of a neurotransmitter. So that's why, you know, you you can imagine that a lot of medical conditions have to do with abnormal transmission of information from one neuron to the next. So if we think about things like diarrhea, like anxiety, where, you know, in diarrhea, your intestines are moving too quickly. In anxiety, you have too many thought processes going through. In neuropathic pain, you have abnormal transmission of information along the nervous system. So by stimulating the endocannabinoid system, what happens is you ultimately have a reduction in the amount of information that goes from one cell to the next, thereby causing a desired physiologic effect. Like less diarrhea or less anxiety, yeah. Or less perception of pain because less sensation or less transmission of information going through. So it's a moderator. It modulates the experience. Exactly. It modulates, but we also have to understand that while the endocannabinoid system exists very, very importantly within the brain, the central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, it also exists in just about every other tissue, organ, and system within the human body, which is both one of the great things about the endocannabinoid system, but also one of the things that makes harnessing it for therapeutic purposes somewhat difficult. Yeah, this is like um, the opioid system as well. It's also throughout the body. So you get some positive effects, but also side effects. Exactly. And, and you know, physicians don't like it because they would consider cannabinoids to be a dirty drug. You know, physicians are usually want to have a single molecule that has a single effect, whereas cannabis, you have one molecule that has many effects. It's going to make you uh, less pain, but it's going to make you sleepy. It's going to calm you down and relax you. So while physicians don't like that, my experience has been that patients are, that's the reason why they like cannabis so much, because it can have an effect not only on their pain, but it can also have an effect on their appetite, on their sleep, on their anxiety. So they can actually target multiple symptoms with a single molecule. And often these patients will be able to not only reduce one of their analgesic medications, but they'll also be able to reduce a number of other medications, let's say for sleep, for 
mood, for uh, acid reflux, whatever the case may be. Can I ask you a question now? Um, I'd like you to elaborate more on the CB1 and CB2 sort of areas of the brain or body. But before we get to that, since we have an endocannabinoid system and there must be some ways that we can enhance that ourselves without an external intake of, uh, of the plant because it was there before the plant. So how do we naturally boost our endocannabinoid system? Like, like will exercise do it? Will good foods do it? Or will bad foods take away from it? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a great point. And I think, you know, the best medicine or the best treatment for everyone is no medicine, just lifestyle modification. So can lifestyle enhance, like what was uh, endocannabinoid system intended to, I mean, you've told us the intention, but what, how do we turn it on to our favor? Yeah. So, you know, the endocannabinoid system is really kind of a, a system that is used to optimize our health. It's not going to be the main driver behind most physiologic processes, but it can definitely help to optimize. So while we want to have an optimized endocannabinoid system, and it will have an impact on everything else, there is not any one thing that we can do. But as you had mentioned, similar to uh, other pathologic areas, we can optimize our endocannabinoid system by lifestyle modification. We do know that running or doing physical exercise can promote the creation of endocannabinoids. Know that... You're not just getting a runner's high, but you're getting a buzz as well. (laughs) Exactly. You're getting an endocannabinoid buzz or high. Okay. You're stimulating your your reward circuitry through the endocannabinoid system as well as other systems when doing physical exercise. The other thing that's important to understand or, or remember is that the endocannabinoids that we produce are made up of uh, amino acids that have to be derived from dietary sources. Uh-huh. Now we're getting to good stuff here. Yeah. yeah. And the, these dietary sources are polyunsaturated fatty acids. So in order to have a proper functioning endocannabinoid system, we have to have the available substrates, which means that having a, a diet that has um, sufficient omega-3s and 6s is very, very important. So that's one of the ways that we can optimize our own endocannabinoid system. And it would explain why if somebody's in in uh, basically eating junk food all the time, their endocannabinoid system is not optimized. Like it's probably at its weakest. That's correct. Yeah, okay. Exactly. okay. Well, and, and we also see with people who are eating junk food all the time, changes in their endogenous endocannabinoid tone. And, and this is something that, you know, is both really at the beginning of being studied because it's very, very difficult to measure an individual's endocannabinoid tone because the endocannabinoids that we produce are created on demand and are degraded so quickly that it's very, very difficult to take uh, blood samples to measure one's endocannabinoid tone. Can you define what that is for people? Pardon? Can you define what that is, endocannabinoid tone? 
So the endocannabinoid tone really refers to the amount of anandamide and 2-AG, so the, the uh, kind of concentration of endocannabinoids that we have circulating in our body. Okay. And the higher, the better. I mean, the higher in terms of natural high, the better. In general, the higher, the better. That's true. And, you know, there, there was one uh, case study that's super interesting. And before before I mention that, I will mention that the the third component of the endocannabinoid system, so the first component are the endocannabinoids, the second component are the receptor, cannabinoid receptors, and the third component are the enzymes that either create or degrade the endocannabinoids. Ah. And there was a really, really interesting case that was published about five, six years ago. And it was a case of a a woman who had undergone an orthopedic surgery that was, it was on the foot and was known to be very, very painful in the post-operative period. She woke up from her surgery. She was happy. The nurses kept coming by to offer her pain medication. And she said, no, no, thank you. I'm, I'm good. And the nurses and the doctors were really scratching their heads, wondering, why is it? And they started asking this woman a little bit more of her medical history. And it turned out that she had never had a headache in her life. She had never needed anything more than a Tylenol for any surgery that she had had previously. And she reports never having had any type of anxiety. And they said, this is so curious because... most unusual. You're you're in an anomaly. They did started doing tests, and they found that she had a genetic mutation that basically reduced one of the enzymes that broke down her endocannabinoids. Wow! And that means that she had a naturally higher circulating uh, level of endocannabinoids in her body that really provided her with. A lifetime of good effects, you know, no pain, natural high, just a natural high. Wow, that's very interesting. Okay, so we can see how important this endocannabinoid system really is. Okay, did you want to say more about the cannabinoid one two distribution in the body and the yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, you know, while we have both these cannabinoid receptor one and cannabinoid receptor twos, they're not distributed equally within the body. Cannabinoid receptor one, CB1s, are found primarily within the central and peripheral nervous system. Although not exclusively, they're also found in uh, adipocytes, they're found in the spleen, they're found in some other areas. And then the CB2s, cannabinoid receptor 2s, are primarily found within the immune system, within the circulatory system, with and also within the liver, the adipocytes, and other areas that have to do with inflammation. Could we say almost that CBD1 um, is a uh, brain more or less, if just if we want to classify it, and the rest is body, CB2 is, is body? Yes, with the exception that CB1s are also found uh, in high concentration in the enteric nervous system. Enteric meaning the gut. 
the gut. Yeah. Exactly. That's important because we want to get to that. And a lot of people forget that we have as many neurons in the enteric nervous system as we do in our central nervous system. Ah, yes, right. Okay. And we know about that because when we look at anxiety, anxiety is often manifested in the gut and that's a stress response. Yeah. Okay. So part of that is the endocannabinoid piece. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now there's, there's always some crosstalk and some cross pollination, I'll say, between CB1 and CB2. So while a general rule, CB1s are in the central peripheral and enteric nervous systems, CB2s are in the immune system, there's still some crosstalk between the two. And you do have CB2s within the central nervous system because we do believe that CB2 activation can be responsible to help reduce neuroinflammation. Hmm. Okay. So, all right. So, so can we now, that was a, a great summary. Uh, so now can we make some ap- applications to our eating and to potential food aberrative behavior? So how does the endocannabinoid system fit into food? And we know that it does because people get the munchies. We know that it does because we treat, uh, we give uh, cannabis for people when they're in chemotherapy or what are uh, HIV medication to help initiate hunger. So, Can you tell us how that works, that system works? Sure thing. So we know that when people consume cannabis recreationally, they usually experience three main things. I like to say people feel happy, hungry, and sleepy. (laughs) So they feel happy because they get a sense of euphoria, they relax, their stresses go away. They feel sleepy. It has, we mentioned, the endocannabinoid system has a great impact on our sleep and wake cycle. It has an impact on our mood, and it has an impact on our appetite and digestion. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the impact of cannabis, when consumed or ingested, inhaled or ingested, makes you hungry by a number of different processes. It is going to make you hungry, first of all, by enhancing your physical sensation. So it will improve the way things smell. It will improve the way things taste. It is also going to have an effect on your appetite or hunger by enhancing the dopaminergic effects of the reward cycle. So you're going to have improvement in that way. We've also found that the acute ingestion of THC will also have an impact on hormones that regulate appetite. So it will have an impact on ghrelin. So it will increase ghrelin and and that's going to make you more hungry. And it's also going to decrease leptin in the majority of cases. Is our satiety hormone. Exactly. So we can see that, you know, the use of cannabis, and when I'm talking about this, we're really talking about THC, which acts as an agonist at CB1 and CB2 receptors. So basically what we're saying is an agonist will turn on these receptors. Yeah. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. 
Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. Molly here with a new workshop coming in September on dealing with defense mechanisms. As human beings, we are designed to protect ourselves from danger. Our will to survive is primal and innate, but it isn't limited to physical threats to our life. Early in our lives, our defense mechanisms can feel like tools to our very survival. However, as we grow up, these same psychological defenses can start to hurt rather than help us. This workshop will introduce you to the 20 most common defense or psychological mechanisms. Do you take your feelings out on others? Do you justify an unacceptable feeling or behavior with logic? Or do you avoid reality by retreating to a safe place within your mind? By the end of four weeks, you will develop a greater self-awareness and learn effective coping skills so you don't have to resort to these unhelpful defense mechanisms anymore. While parting with your defense mechanisms may mean coming face-to-face with addiction or giving up control over a situation, you'll be taking a step closer to learning to live with your feelings. Join us Wednesdays in September. You'll get pre-recorded videos, worksheets and resources, and four live sessions. Live workshops will be held September 6th, 13th, 20th, and 27th at 2 p.m. Eastern. And as always, our workshops are $50 U.S. Hope to see you there. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. But before we talk about using plants, like the normal, the original endocannabinoid system, so if it affects taste, the sensation of taste and the dopamine um, and the uh, satiety hormone signals. So before you introduce a drug, so these the endocannabinoid system is partly a regulatory of things so that if I don't taste, there's something with my, my endocannabinoid tone might be low and that's why I'm not enjoying food. Yes, exactly. So even people who have chronic nausea, it it could be a dysregulation of the endocannabinoid system. Right. People who have chronically low appetite could be a dysregulation of the endocannabinoid system. And we see this uh, regularly in people who are habitual recreational cannabis users. Uh And just like we see it with opioid users, how chronic opioid use will change your uh, endogenous concentration of opioids, the chronic administration of exogenous cannabinoids will have an impact on your endocannabinoid tone. In other words, um, you become tolerant, and so then your tone drops and you'll need more to to sort of correct it. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. So now I was asking about the normal, um, how things can deregulate. So that's the person who's chronically nauseous or or has um, upset. So what about addiction where the person is eating more? Then it's not because they're smoking pot. They're just eating more. Is there something with the tone that's been disrupted um, because they, they're they're chasing the dopamine? And are they also chasing the um, endocannabinoid, trying to raise their endocannabinoid tone? Yeah. So, you know, there are there's limited studies at the moment really looking at uh, endocannabinoid tone in individuals who are overweight or obese. Mm-hmm. And they've actually found that there may be differences in the endocannabinoid tone and the effects that the endocannabinoid system has depending on whether individuals are obese due to a metabolic abnormality or if it's due to hedonic use of food. But in, 
both. Yeah. And, and in general, what we find is that there is an increased tone in these individuals. So, but how and if that can actually be used as a target for a potential therapeutic target, it's right. really too early in the research to, to be able to uh, weigh in on that. Okay. But I would imagine that that is a key area of research is to try to see if, if they could. Yes. So first of all, to understand what is going on in both normal physiology as well as in pathologic stage, so obesity, find out. And and, and it also seems that there could be differences uh, in sex in some women, in between women and men in terms of their response to cannabinoids, but also exogenous cannabinoids, but also their endocannabinoid tone. Okay. Have you more to say, uh, tell us about how food eating um, is related to all of this. So you were saying that there were the three areas, the, the dopamine area, the hormonal area, and the sense of taste. That's right. Uh, and, and also your self-control, I'll say. Right. Uh, so with the administration of an exogenous cannabinoid, such yeah. as THC, that will activate cannabinoid receptors one and two, it's going to have a wide variety of effects on the body. Mm-hmm. So first of all, as we had mentioned, it's really going to increase or enhance that reward circuitry. That is the munchies. But not only that, it also increases the immediate pleasure of food because you're smelling better. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of cannabinoid receptors in the olfactory bulb. It will taste better and you're going to have less guilt or thoughts about, oh, I shouldn't be eating because the immediate joy and uh, enjoyment of consuming food is going to be greater than anything else. We also find that the amount of endogenous cannabinoids uh, that are produced are higher in response to fatty or high caloric foods, which is interesting. And we don't know exactly how that relates to a pathologic state. So there, there's, there's a lot. We know that the endocannabinoid system is incredibly important. Yeah. But there's still a lot of questions that remain to well, be answered. Can I just extrapolate? So what you're saying is a person who's eating like a fatty junk food diet, they're going to get essentially more high uh, than a good diet. Over the short term. Yeah, over the short term. Yeah. Okay. But over the long term, yeah. they're going to develop tolerance. Yes, and they're not necessarily going to have that same effect. So they're going to require more and more, leading to worsening obesity and weight gain. Now, you were talking about how this is all related to THC. So what about CBD? Like, is, is, isn't there an antagonistic effect or an opposite effect there? Or like if we were, it sounds to me like a food addict would not want to smoke a joint because that's going to make things worse. But is the CBD line um, of therapeutics a potential to help mitigate some of that. Well, before before we go into that, let's let's address what you had said about, you know, people who are overweight might not want to smoke a joint. Yeah. So what's interesting is that we have found, and this is through population-based studies, 
is that individuals who use cannabis on occasion will develop the munchies, will have increased appetite, uh, potentially have weight gain. But people who are using cannabis chronically do not have that same amount of uh, potential weight increase. They don't tend to gain weight. Having the munchies doesn't translate into obesity. And people who are using cannabis daily or several times weekly on a regular basis. So when they have done population-based studies and they've compared people who smoke or ingest cannabis regularly and compare those to individuals who don't but match them for age and other medical comorbidities, they found that the BMI of these individuals using cannabis regularly is actually lower and their metabolic potential metabolic complications are also lower. So you're saying ultimately that uh, somebody who uses on a regular basis cannabis can actually eat their cake and have it too. They can they can not gain the weight. Is that what you're that's, saying? That's right. And oh and it, and it could be because of the very complex way that the endocannabinoid system responds to exogenous administration of cannabinoids. Okay. So I are mentioned. Are they still eating as much as they did early days when they actually enjoyed it? Um, enjoying it as much? That's a good question, and I don't know. I, I don't think so, because I think people tend to get habituated to yeah, okay. the the psychotropic effects, okay. and, and they don't tend to get the same reward, intense rewards, that okay. they would when they're cannabis naive and just starting off using cannabis. It could be potentially then. I, I don't, I, this is not where I want this podcast to go, but nevertheless, what you're saying is it could be that this could be a treatment for that insane um, binge craving. that can happen, craving, um, yeah, that it can actually dampen that down over time. Yeah. And there's also, and, and that's, you know, when we talk about food as an addiction. Yeah. We're talking about neural pathways for addictive behavior and and it could be the same for, you know, whether we're talking about food addiction, whether we're talking about alcohol alcohol use disorder, whether talking about opioid use disorder. You know, there's been a tremendous amount of investigation looking at using cannabinoids as a treatment for these other use disorders and for also treating uh, the symptoms of withdrawal. Okay, so that- this is not a substitution harm reduction approach. This is an actual curbing or changing of that behavior. Yeah, and and usually yeah. there's like a the dual approach where there is a, a substitute, could be a substitution. So there's also some other interesting studies looking at cannabis use as a substitute for yeah. more harmful substances, but also using it to help people wean off of or harmful substances. Because they're actually reducing the whole addiction drive dynamic. Exactly. And and recently, or maybe a year or two ago now, there was a really interesting study using CBD. Uh, Now, CBD, before we go further, is different than THC. THC is responsible for the psychotropic or euphoric effects of cannabis. It is an agonist, so it activates CB1 and 2 receptors. 
CBD or cannabidiol doesn't have any real ability to make you high. So there's no recreational value in CBD. And it also is different than THC in that it doesn't act as an agonist at these CB1 and 2 receptors. Instead, it acts in a way, in a number of ways in the human body at sites that are outside of cannabinoid receptor 1 and 2. It can help to uh, reduce the degradation of one of those enzymes that breaks down our own endogenous cannabinoids. So CBD can actually increase your endocannabinoid tone, thereby improving resilience, improving uh, inflammation, decreasing anxiety. But what it does at the cannabinoid receptors is that it actually acts as a a negative allosteric modulator. So what that means is that it will dampen the effects of THC. So it doesn't, it's not like uh, THC is the gas and CBD is the break, but it will actually help, you know, CBD, what happens is that it will modulate how strongly the cannabinoid receptor will respond to THC or our other endogenous, our other endogenous endocannabinoids. Can we use the CBD then for um, addiction as well or or for uh, food addiction? So we're actively looking into that because CBD has effects not only at the endocannabinoid level, but also in many other areas. And we're looking at CBD as an anti-anxiety medication. We know that addiction and anxiety are also very related. So potentially by addressing anxiety, it might have a downstream effect on addiction, whether it be food or substances. It has an impact on neuroinflammation. So CBD is actually considered to be a potent anti-inflammatory, which is one of the reasons why we give it regularly to patients who have chronic pain, because it helps with the inflammatory component. It also helps with the perception of pain. As we mentioned, it increases our endocannabinoid tone. And it has a number of other off-target from CB1 and 2 receptors effects in the human body. So there is developing evidence that CBD may be beneficial in the future to use for addiction, whether it be food or uh, substance use. And there was a study I, I was mentioning that administration of high doses of CBD in a patient who are regular cocaine users and who wanted to reduce their consumption improved significantly the ability to be abstinent from substances versus those who were not using CBD. Okay, and the CBD does not make them high, so it isn't trading one high for another. That's correct. Now, now just as a practical question, you're talking about CBD and THC as you can actually distinguish or separate those out. Can you actually get a CBD product that does not have a significant amount of THC in it? Does that actually exist? I know they advertise that, but is it actually true? Absolutely. So the products that are available in Canada, you can get products that are that have a ratio of 30 milligrams of CBD to one milligram of THC. There are some other products that have almost purified 
CBD, quite a bit more expensive, probably not worth the extra expense because if you're using, let's say, 100 milligrams of CBD a day, you're getting two or three milligrams of THC a day with that 100 milligrams of CBD, you get habituated to that very small amount of THC very quickly. And it's not going to have a deleterious effect. It's not going to impede or impact your ability to drive or function on a daily basis. Okay, so I would imagine that something that can make that kind of difference from 30 to 1 would have to be synthetic. I mean, can you actually grow a plant that that will give you that kind of ratio, or are we talking synthetics now? No, we're not talking synthetics. We're talking plant-derived cannabinoids. But just remember that you're not ingesting the plant. You're using the plant to as, as a as a factory to create molecules. You harvest these molecules, you get rid of all the extra stuff, and then you concentrate it into a carrier oil. Oh, an oil. Okay, so you're talking oils then. Yeah. Yeah. Not smoking. Okay. No. And and to be honest, there when we're talking about uh, medical cannabis, and when we're talking about using CBD for a therapeutic purpose, yeah. there is virtually no role for inhaled CBD. Oh. All just about all CBD that's being used for a therapeutic purpose is uh, ingested in a capsule, or that's basically oil that's encapsulated, or you just take a oil. With a syringe, you put it in your mouth and you swallow. Oh, okay. It's not even a gummy bear or a, a muffin or something like that. Well, I don't know. You know, that's just extra yeah. calorie. Okay. All right. So, and yeah, just a little word of advice. The uh, ingredients that go into the oil versus the gummies, it's all the same thing. You're just paying about a 10-time premium for them to transform it into a gummy or a muffin or a chocolate. Uh, so tell us about synthetics. It sounded like you had something to say about that. Yeah, so there is no synthetic CBD at the moment. It all comes, I mean, they do have it for research purposes, but it's not available on the market. There is, however, synthetic THC-like molecules that are available. There's like spice now and, and the stuff that you can buy off the street. No, no we're talking about a THC analog. So it's almost the same molecule as THC, but it's just slightly different so that they can patent it and put it into a pill. And this molecule goes by the name of nabilone. Oh yeah. Okay. We've had that, like you said, we've had that for years. Yeah. Nabilone is the generic name. Sesamet is the trade name. We gave it to HIV patients in the 90s. Exactly. So nabilone is a medication. It's available in Canada. It's a general drug benefit in almost all provinces. Uh-huh. And it was initially put on the market in the 90s as a treatment for chronic uh, nausea and uh, to promote appetite stimulation in people with uh, HIV-associated cachexia or, um, or, or cancer-related cachexia. Yes. And we've been using it tremendously in clinical practice for people who have chronic pain, especially neuropathic pain, uh, agitated dementia, we in the hospital. I, I work in the hospital. I use it all the time on the geriatric ward. I much prefer it to the uh, antipsychotics, the benzodiazepines, 
almost and I have all the geriatricians at my hospital converted as well. They give it to almost all of their patients who have dementia, who have difficulty sleeping, who have problems with appetite. And the synthetic THC or nabalone can be incredibly effective for nausea. And it can be, it can help to stimulate appetite because a lot of people, when they get older, their endocannabinoid tone will diminish. They're probably not taking in enough of the substrates to support the endocannabinoid system. So our polyunsaturated fatty acids, uh, their you know use of resources might be diverted to other important body processes. So giving them some exogenous cannabinoids sometimes really is beneficial to boost their functions that are really influenced by the endocannabinoid system. So as I was saying before, happy, hungry, and sleepy. Yeah. Now, what about the opposite? Uh, one of Because I'm an addictions physician, and so uh, I see two things happening. People coming in because they're addicted, and, the, and there's withdrawal, and also the hyperemesis syndrome. So can you, can you address, first of all, the hyperemesis syndrome? So a person comes in vomiting, vomiting, vomiting. So here, here's this drug that's supposed to help. Uh, nauseousness. What's happened here where it's it's gone, it seems like the other way? So there's there's a phenomenon that's called the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Yes. And this is super interesting. And it's been more and more recognized as in uh, a, mostly in a recreational use population. So cannabis hyperemesis syndrome is exactly like you had mentioned. It's almost an allergy to cannabis, where instead of feeling happy, hungry, and sleepy, you get a an incredible sense of nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Yes. And usually the symptoms are relieved by taking a very hot shower. Yes. Yes. And and there's even That's really some... true. Patients say that. It's really true. Yeah. And there are some case studies or case reports saying that people had to be, you know, the police or fire department had to be called because patients wouldn't get out of a scalding hot shower. No, like for a half an hour, hour, two hours at a time. It's it's incredible. Yeah. But this is not actually, and, and usually it's in people who are younger, who are using high doses of THC yeah. in an inhaled manner. And it's really an acute response. There's no good treatment for it except to stop using cannabis and for the patient to understand that it really is similar to an allergy where, for whatever reason, their physiology reacts negatively. Yeah. Um, Are you suggesting that that's specific people or that can happen to anybody or at any time? I believe that there's some kind of a genetic component to it. We don't know the exact etiology, but we do know that, as we had said earlier in our discussion, that that there's a lot of CB1 and 2 receptors, or especially CB1s, in the enteric nervous system. It's when you use high doses of, of THC, it stimulates our cannabinoid receptors in our gut, What happens when you stimulate CB1 receptors in the gut is that it slows intestinal motility and it decreases intestinal secretions. Thereby, what happens? It causes diarrhea, constipation, but it can also cause decreased peristalsis leading to pain, nausea, vomiting. 
Okay. That's one theory. Okay. I'm aware that we're running out of time and I want to ask two more questions. A closing question and then the last question, which is about just withdrawal and addiction. What are your comments about that? So chronic, well, we know that cannabis makes you feel happy, hungry, and sleepy. Yeah. If you use it all the time, it is going to change the way that your own endogenous endocannabinoid tone. It takes energy to create endocannabinoids. So if your body is getting cannabinoids from an external source all the time, it's going to shut down your own production of endocannabinoids. You're going to say, your body's going to say, well, I don't have to put energy into creating these. So what happens when you've been using cannabis daily for three months and then you all of a sudden stop? Well, your body isn't going to say, oh, I'm just going to start creating my own endocannabinoids again. It's going to say, hey, Daniel or Vera, you, you got to go get some of those cannabinoids that have been so useful to me. Go ahead and get some. Huh. And how to do that? Well, instead of you feeling happy, hungry, and sleepy, it's going to make you feel the opposite. Yes. Instead of happy, it's going to increase anxiety or irritability. Oh, yeah. Instead of hungry, it's going to decrease your appetite or cause nausea. And instead of sleepy, it's going to give you insomnia. So that's what is commonly seen as uh, cannabis withdrawal syndrome. Yeah. Luckily, you know, with abstinence of cannabis, your cannabinoid receptors and your endogenous endocannabinoid system will basically reset with majoritively within a period of one month and completely after three months. Okay. So wouldn't it then make sense to say uh, use with caution because of the potential of addiction? Yes. So, you know, addiction and is different, obviously, than tolerance and habituation. You know, we do have a term called cannabis use disorder that is really a reliance on the use of cannabis causing significant other effects. So causing you to have decreased social interactions, causing you to engage in harmful behavior in using cannabis in preference to going out with friends, getting a job, completing day-to-day -day activities. Just having tolerance or just having withdrawal isn't necessarily sufficient to say you have a cannabis use disorder or an addiction. So we have to be careful when we're using these terms. Okay. I guess that's the same as the way that we use opiates. We have to be, you know, so some people may abuse them, and but they have a use for them, basically. That's right. So people who use cannabis for medical purposes on a daily basis, they might have an altered endocannabinoid tone, but if they're functioning better and their symptoms are improved, right. and that's not a problem. They, if they do want to stop, they'll have to be aware that there's some withdrawal. Okay, so we need to close this up. So do you have any final statement about what you would say for people struggling with food addiction, so that craving, that enhanced um, inability to stop and enhanced desire to eat, even though they're not enjoying their food necessarily, do you have something that you can say that about the endocannabinoid system that might be useful or about uh, the use of exogenous cannabis? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that the endocannabinoid system really is important in our relationship with food. Using CBD, an exogenous cannabinoid that can have an impact on our endocannabinoid tone, may be beneficial. In order to do so, I would always recommend that you do so 
under the supervision or with the recommendation of a physician to ensure that you're using it appropriately and you have the best chance for success. Because the main mistake that I see most people making when I see them in clinic and I asked them if they've tried cannabis or CBD before, they said yes, uh, but it didn't work. It's because they didn't use a high enough dose and they didn't use it on a consistent enough basis. I would also say that there are some areas where cannabis can be very, very beneficial. And we're talking about THC, and this is in people who have chronic nausea, anorexia, or bulimia, or issues with inflammatory bowel disease. Cannabis can be incredibly beneficial to help with symptoms. But in people who just have a food addiction, uh, I think that we're not yet ready to make uh, cannabinoids a centerpiece of treatment, although using them on a, as a therapeutic trial under the supervision or with the recommendation of a physician would be beneficial to see whether it can help you individually. Okay, that's that's great. I, I we I'm going to stop you there. I have so many more questions, but we our time is is up. Can I just ask you our last signature question, which is about you? Um, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about the endocannabinoid system, or about food addiction, or something like that, what would it be? I think I would say that I would just want to make myself aware that this is the next big thing that the endocannabinoid system is one of the missing keys in our understanding of metabolism, of addiction, whether it be food, drugs, or any other substance. And that the use of CBD in particular is likely going to have some significant effects for uh, a population that is suffering. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Daniel, for spending this time and talking about this. You did, I thought you did a great job. Thank you. More than my pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs> <laughs>